0: Welcome back to the FreightWaves Global Supply Chain Summit. I'm John Kingston, Editor of Large at FreightWaves. A little history. Before I joined FreightWaves, I was with S&P, what's now known as S&P Global Platts, for almost 30 years. And when Platts decided to expand its brand beyond energy and metals where it was, it really wanted to get into the agriculture sector. So there's always that question of, you know, do you buy or do you build? And it decided in agriculture, well, one of the first things we want to do is buy. And one of the first acquisitions that it made was a company called Kingsman. Uh, and Kingsman had made its mark as being the authoritative voice on the sugar market. So that company got its name because it was headed by our guest today, Jonathan Kingsman. And I'm proud to say that he is joining us here at the Waves Global Supply Chain Summit to speak about his views on the agriculture market and the supply chain that drive that. So, Jonathan, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation i appreciate it
0: so let's uh, give some background why don't you talk about what you did at kingsman i mean not not just what you did at, at at the company that was named after you but your entire career and specifically what what it was that you did at kingsman that made it such an attractive acquisition target for uh, such a large player
1: well i started my career uh at cargill um in london and then spent a couple of years with them in minneapolis at their head office which was very very educational Uh, back into London for another couple of years and then went to work for Conti Commodity Services which is a subsidiary of Continental Grain on the brokerage side. I then met my wife and moved to France and moved into the physical brokerage side, a physical brokerage of sugar, international sugar and in 1990 set up my own company and we started reporting on the sugar market and we started a a daily report with giving sugar prices, mainly differentials over and above the futures. And this became very popular. And in fact, the, the tail ended up wagging the dog and the report became the biggest part of our business and our prices and our analysis. So we built onto that an analytical function and we started producing s d uh, figures and doing a lot of in-depth analysis onto the sugar market which combined with the prices um, had pretty wide audience um, throughout from hedge funds, banks, and also service providers. And then, of course, in the beginning of the 2000s, we moved into ethanol uh, because of the importance of ethanol in Brazil. And then started uh, analyzing uh, the ethanol markets and publishing prices on those. So we became one of the leading price reporters for ethanol as well as sugar. And then because we were following biofuels, we had to move into biodiesel and um, different products, byproducts of biodiesel. So Platts was particularly interested in two parts. Firstly, uh, because we were the price reporting, we had the most um, uh, sort of uh, the the biggest market in terms of price reporting for um, sugar, but also had a bit of a footstep, quite a big footprint in Ethanol and biodiesel, and Platts as well was very interested in getting into the analytical side, and to uh, produce um, supply and demand data for the markets, and they saw our company as a as a model for that.
0: So, any so you you stayed with Platts for several years, and now you're back out on your own, and having you here at the uh, Global Supply Chain Summit is very timely because you recently read a a book, (laughs) written a book, Out of the Shadows, The New Merchants of Grain. And the title is drawn from a sort of almost classic business book back from 1979, written by an author named Dan Morgan, called The Merchants of Grain, which was almost sort of like a spy novel, very conspiratorial about the five companies, I believe it was five, that ran the world's grain industry. And and in your book, um, you talk about, a lot of these companies are still around, but they're not really operating in the shadows, hence the title Out of the Shadows. Uh, what are, you know, who are these companies and how do they operate today compared to maybe where they operated 40, 45 years ago?
1: Well, you're very right. Dan Morgan's book was almost like a spy novel because at that time these companies operated in the shadows, and nobody really knew anything about them, but they moved massive quantities of grain, and they started hitting the headlines um, at the time of the Great Grain Robbery. Um, as it's now called, when the Russians came in and bought huge quantities of grain in the late uh, 1970s. And so I was approached by a few people in the grain markets who felt it was timely to do an update and to see how the market has changed, but particularly how the grain companies have changed. Uh, Two of those companies have gone out of business. They used to be Andre, based here where I live in Lausanne in Switzerland, and Continental Grain, who sold their grain trading operations to Cargill, I think around 2000, maybe 1998,
0: Yeah, I, I like had Yeah, I got a kick out of you talking about Continental. They were so secretive that you can't even find a brochure that they might've produced.
1: That's right, but I was actually surprised, John, because Continental grain still exists. And um, what they did is uh, they took the money from selling their, their grain uh, operations and invested in a lot of very uh, more higher gro- higher growth industries. And also funnily enough, they are invested into Bungi and Michel Fribourg is on the board now of Bungi. So Continental Grain and the Fribourg family is still actively involved in the grain trade.
0: So yeah, um, I, I wanna, you, you talked about the, the great grain robbery and what struck me was that you talked about that the grain markets had two big disruptions in the seventies, the first would have been the big Soviet buying of of grain. Uh, They had gone from a large net exporter, the breadbasket of the world, uh, to an importer of grain. And then the second being the embargo of US exports to the Soviet Union by Jimmy Carter in 1979, 1980, because of the invasion of Afghanistan. And I got the sense that you felt that what's going on the past couple of years with the Trump trade wars against China, which has disrupted numerous supply chains, Um, in the grain side that you felt that this was as momentous as those other events from back in the 70s.
1: That's right, and it it pretty much was because it was blocking um, trade and what happened was the governments were coming back into the business, uh, not just in the US, which was impacting very seriously uh, the grain exports out of the US and the grain markets in the US, but also uh, funnily enough in Russia where the Russian government is sort of getting involved again in Russian grain exports one of the biggest changes since 1979 is the the change round from Russia become being an importer major importer at that time to being a major exporter now the biggest exporter of wheat for example so what was happening is you got government intervention and uh, this impacted negatively on the US farmer because the, Brazil, the Chinese would be buying Brazilian grains, particularly Brazilian soybeans. So quite often government intervention impacts these trade flows and makes it pretty difficult for uh, markets to operate. And this is what was happening at that time. So I was trying to raise a flag to say, look, if you want these markets to operate efficiently and well, and to be able to feed the 7.6 billion people on this planet, you need to have the price signals getting through and people, the transparency in the markets, and you need uh, governments to stay away from trying to do what they do, which is set prices, um, fix export quotas, all this sort of
0: thing. How destructive were these pr- uh, price war? I was like, price wars. How destructive were these trade wars on some of these supply chains, which had taken years to build the, the, the ties between major US exporters and China?
1: I think they, looking back now, it's not that bad, because those supply chains still exist, the infrastructure still exists, so nothing was actually destroyed, and they haven't really lasted that long. So now what we've got is China coming back as a huge buyer of grains, particularly corn and soybeans, and they are buying from the US and from Brazil, and those supply chains are working. And so we've, we, we can see that the market, it's robust, and those supply chains are robust. Um, one of the biggest, so go ahead. One of the biggest differences between 1979 is the growth of the soybean market. There was very few soybeans at that time. And soybeans have become so important for the international grain trade flows. Um, and it's really US and Brazil uh, into China And the overwhelming importance now of China, you just can't exaggerate it. It's just the driver. Everything comes down to China.
0: Now, let's go back to the talk about these big companies. As you said, they're not all around anymore. Some have morphed, been merged, whatever. But does the agricultural supply chain internationally work as efficiently as it does because it's got such big players who can... I'm not sure of the term I'm looking for, exert a little discipline, not necessarily on prices, uh, but just they're they're so efficient that they can really create and set up these these incredible supply chains that go from the field really right down to the the, 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 the eater's table.
1: Well they, they like to call themselves now supply chain managers uh, rather than traders or merchandisers, and they all try to extend as far as they can now from the field to uh, as close to the consumer as they can, including in, in terms of some markets and branded products. So they are uh, very long, very. they have a huge global footprint, I think that's the expression that you wanted. Um, and they do go from field virtually to fork, but although they're huge, they the top seven account for something like 50% only 50% of the world international grain flows, including beans and oilseeds. So they don't have any particular sort of competitive advantage. They all they compete like mad with each other, but there's an awful lot of smaller companies or, or not quite so big companies nipping at their heels, really trying to take their business. And uh, it's very difficult for them because these are huge. They haven't invested massively in logistics, uh infrastructure and you get smaller companies coming in without that big asset base and sometimes they can nip and duck and weave and take some of the business so it's very competitive very low margin business
0: yeah I was gonna say seven companies controlling 50 percent. I mean that is not high concentration
1: no not at all yeah um and, go ahead
0: I mean the other thing that really comes through in the book and that is the the incredible uh, gains in yield Uh, all throughout the world. Uh, You're you're using less land, you're producing more food. Uh, Famine is the kind of thing that tends to happen, not because there aren't enough calories in the world, but because you've got war or some kind of crazy, silly government policy. You know, you think about the famine in Venezuela, uh, you think about the famine in Zimbabwe years ago, um, and there just seems to be no end to the efficiency of the agricultural sector in, in yielding pulling more and more agricultural product out of the out of the ground or dealing with livestock. What is that attributed to?
1: It's just better farm practices. And the uh, farmers, particularly the US farmers, are getting more and more efficient. Um, They're getting better and they're also getting bigger. The farms are getting bigger, so there's more efficiency, uh, more professionalism. And actually, because the yields are better, this is better for the environment. Um, the farmers, US farmers are often attacked for being so big and monocrop, firstly, not they're not monocrop, they, they alternate corn and beans and they work very well together. But this increase in efficiency has allowed um, for uh, the f- area under farmland in the world to actually go down and areas to be rewilded and um, reforested. And that's amazing experience.
0: You you talk about the yields. I was interested to learn that there are no GMO wheat seeds. I I was not aware of that. I know that there's certainly GMO corn and GMO rice. But you talk about these incredible gains in yield. And the fact is a lot of the world doesn't like GMO crops. Certainly, I think where you're sitting in Europe, uh, I know that it's uh, political campaigns against GMO crops are certainly more vehement. Uh, and, and more fierce than in the U.S. I mean, what happened if the rest of the world were to it, would have embraced GMO corn and GMO rice? You're talking about a significant increase in yield if that were to happen, right? Is that correct?
1: Absolutely. Uh, there was a guy called Erlman, I think, in the 1960s that wrote a book called The Population Bomb, all early. where he predicted, yeah, who yeah. predicted that we're all going to starve because there wouldn't be enough food. And in fact, the problem is that there's too much food. So um my personal view is that part of the the campaign against gm um crops is 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 non-tariff barriers by the eu who don't want us products coming in um, or brazilian products coming in but it's also that this would probably push down prices um because we don't need that extra production so um we don't actually need uh that much of extra production anywhere in the world but remember that it's estimated that about only about half of these extra yields come from gm the 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 gm part
0: right yeah you 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 so they get to cloak their opposite they, they, they get to cloak their desire to restrict supplies under the guise of what well, we're just trying to protect against gmo even though gmo has certainly passed the the science test
1: Absolutely. It's the same you get you get anti-vaxxers and you get conspiracy theories. And then you get the green movements that are coming in against GM. Um, Greenpeace, for example, campaigns against uh, GM rice. And there's a rice that would help uh, there's been genetically modified that would help, I think, blindness in Asia, but it's not being introduced because uh, Greenpeace and others are against it. So it's not quite clear why because the science is there in favor of them and supports them.
0: Yeah, as, as you note, and you, you did make reference to this, If you even if you grew the same amount of food now, if, if you spread GMO technology to the rest of the world and you uh, grew the same amount of food, if you could do it on more land, excuse me, on less land, then you could reforest a lot of things that are now farms.
1: Absolutely. And uh, the same same with the, with the Roundup Ready. Uh, GM allows... For the uh, Roundup ready to be applied, if that was to be banned, uh, then you'd have to go back to old ways of farming and you'd need, I don't know, 15 to 20 percent more farmland. So that would actually be bad for the environment in that sense.
0: Yeah, you talked so, about that. That was an interesting part of the book you talked about. Uh, yeah, I think you were interviewing somebody who was talking about Roundup. And you know, for, for those who aren't familiar, I, don't, I forget the scientific name of Roundup, but it is a weed killer, among other things. Uh, it, it suffered, it's mon, it manufactured Monsanto, suffered a very big jury verdict against it. I mean, I guess measured in the billions of dollars and the concern here, I guess, that was expressed by who you interviewed in the book is that if, 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 if Roundup is banned, to make that same amount of food, you are talking about a lot more land.
1: And also you need to bring back um, uh, plowing and turning the land. And because at the moment it's no-till, so they just replant the seeds without turning the land. So if you had to, if you weren't allowed to use Roundup Ready, you would have to plough the fields, and this would release a lot more carbon. So it would be bad in terms of carbon emissions, but also in terms of uh, more, needing more land, and therefore less rewilding, less forests, and less biodiversity. <laughs>
0: Let's go back to one of your first points. We've only got a couple of minutes. So you you said when Platts acquired Kingsman, it did so because it wanted the sugar information, but also the biofuels information. And back then, there there was that whole debate and discussion about food versus fuel and the idea being that if you diverted more food into making biodiesel or making ethanol, you had less of that food for, for consumption. And, you know, I do remember the inflation of 06, 07, the commodity inflation of 06, 07. In your book, you wrote about the the tortilla riots in Mexico when the price of corn got so high that it uh, really caused a lot of social tension in Mexico. That, as you point out in your book, has kind of faded. And um, the price of fuel has been kept in check and the price of food has mostly been kept in check. So was that just a a fall? I mean, it, it made sense up front when it was first raised. But did that just turn out to be a false, a false trade-off?
1: I think it was. I think it was unfortunate that it coincided with that commodity boom and that huge sucking sound as China started to industrialize and Westernize, modernize. And so they needed all of these commodities and the world wasn't, so there were bottlenecks. The world wasn't ready for them. So world food prices went up and unfortunately biofuels got the blame. But now if you look at it, um, the 40% of the US corn crop goes to ethanol, 50% of the EU rapeseed crop goes to biodiesel, and prices aren't moving. Um, they're moving up now because of China, but they're not, certainly are not moving up because of uh, ethanol or biofuels.
0: Yeah, I remember Exxon, Exxon's big thing on being green was to try to make diesel from algae, and their argument was, you know, there's no food versus fuel because nobody eats algae. And then there was all that discussion about using the, the, uh, the oil of Jatropa, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, which was this sort of prickly uh, crop product that nobody, ate. again, not, not edible, but had really great oil in it. And you just don't hear that anymore because the food versus fuel debate seems to be off the table
1: no in fact those two things were very bad because they were unfortunately um, a few people persuaded a lot of people in india and in north africa to plant a tropha and the yields were just appalling because there wasn't enough water and with the seaweed it was so expensive to haul it out of the sea that you use more fuel hauling it out of the sea than you could produce from it but in the terms of of corn which is produced so cheaply in efficiency or in sugarcane where the the, the the crops the biomass is there both cases and can be processed very close close to the, the where the fields are um, they make sense and um, there's relaunching of big big tax incentives now in the U S to build uh, renewable fuel plants particularly biodiesel
0: well Jonathan I could go on for a long time it's a fascinating discussion but we have run out of time here on the FreightWaves Global Supply Chain Summit. Uh, we've been talking with Jonathan Kingsman. He's the founder of a company by his name that is now part of S&P Global Platts. Uh, he's now an author and a consultant. His new book is Out of the Shadows, The New Merchants of Grain. Jonathan, please come back to a future FreightWaves conference.
1: With pleasure. And thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Okay, and everybody stick around for our next presentation. Thank you for joining. I'm John Kingston, editor our Larger FreightWaves.
1: Thank you, John.